a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share a recording of a recent conversation I hosted featuring Raj Venkatesan. Raj is a member of the Darden faculty and teaches in the marketing area, and he is also one of the co-academic leaders for the MS in Business Analytics program, or MSBA program, here at the University of Virginia. You may know that this program is a partnership between the University of Virginia Darden School of Business, as well as the McIntyre School of Commerce here at UVA. We caught up with Raj to talk more about his background, what attracted him to the academic leadership role for MSBA, how things have gone this year, and so much more. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Raj Vinkatesan. Raj, great to see you. How's everything? Great to see you, Brett. Everything is good. Nice and good weather here. And uh, excited to meet our uh, prospective students and excited uh, for this webinar. All right. And for those of you, if you have questions as we go along, as I mentioned, I've prepared some questions, things to talk through, but we're also interested in hearing from you. So if you want to share your questions, the best way to do that is via the Q&A. Uh, if you're wondering where the Q&A fun- function is in Zoom, if you look along the menu, you'll see a button that says Q&A. Open that up, type your question. I'll keep an eye on the Q&A as we, as we go along. Uh, but to start things off, Raj, maybe tell us a little bit more about who you are and your background. So, Brett, you started uh, gave me a kind introduction there. Uh, I'm uh, Raj Vinkatesan. I uh, teach marketing at uh, Darden School of Business at the University of Virginia. This is my, believe it or not, 17th year. Um, so I've been uh, here for a while. Uh, I My specialty is in digital marketing and digital transformation and analytics. I actually did my undergrad in computer engineering. And uh, around that time, uh, this thing called neural networks and genetic algorithms were this uh, theoretical concept that I learned. I did a project, a capstone project in that, and didn't think it would go anywhere. So, and said, I'll do uh, marketing because I took an econ class and I felt I loved it. So I said, okay, let me try my hand at this. Little did I know that my worlds will collide. And now uh, what we call as AI and machine learning is all deep learning, which is a uh, variation of neural networks. And the new thing is genetic algorithms, which is what I wrote like uh, a few of my early papers in marketing was using genetic algorithms for predicting uh, customer lifetime value, which is again, a big metric that digital firms use uh, when they're evaluating the subscription models that they have. So it's been a, quite a ride. Uh, I love uh, doing my research, uh, writing case studies. I teach uh, marketing analytics and digital marketing here and uh, do a lot of consulting work in the same space. Uh, I advise uh, medium to big enterprises on their analytics projects and digital transformation projects. And uh, for the last year, I have been the co-director of this uh, really innovative program that we have, which is collaboration with McIntyre and Darden School uh, with the Masters in Business Analytics program. Thank you, Raj. And you shared a lot there. For our attendees today, we're going to come back to some of the things that, that Raj just mentioned. But before we do, we want to talk a little bit more about what attracted you to the role that you have with the MSBA program now. Uh, so you're a marketing faculty member. You decided to take on this leadership role. Why? So (laughs) sometimes I ask that question myself, (laughs) why? But, you know, I think I like new things. I like different things. That's what I have done all my uh, time here at Darden. 
and i like uh, collaborating with uh, outside of dart mm-hmm. and uh, really uh, trying out new things and I feel like the MSBHX all the boxes. It's a new program for Darden um, and the McIntyre School. It's a one-year degree program, which at least the Darden School has never done before. And it's a really technology-focused, future-focused uh, program, which really, I think, uh, fits with my expertise as well. I've uh, always focused on digital and analytics in my research, in my case writing, and in my teaching and consulting. So this really fitted with uh, that as well. So it's a new program where you can experiment a lot. It's something that I think uh, we learn a lot in the whole enterprise from the, you know, it's the tip of the spear for what's happening out there and how the higher ed and the business education community is actually changing. And for us, MSBA can be that place where you learn a lot and also keep updating yourself. So for all of these reasons, this seemed like a perfect place for me to, you know, uh, contribute and uh, be of uh, use for the organization. And I meet a lot of new students that are very different. And, you know, uh, that has been the biggest uh, actually uh, uh, joy for me with this uh, program has been um, working with the students who are really um, very, like, you know, they've thought a lot about doing this program and they're really smart students and they come with different experiences. So, you know, working with them has been a real pleasure for me. Yeah, I appreciate your mentioning the students. It's interesting uh, time for our program. We're recruiting the sixth cohort of students uh, for this this program right now. Uh, for folks who are on this call, you may, may be wondering, are we still accepting applications? The answer is yes. We just passed our last deadline, but if you've been looking uh, at our website, you know that we will continue to accept applications until the MSBA cohort fills, which it's pretty typical for the MSBA class to kind of come together in, in June and July, right before the start of school. So Raj, I know this year has been a very full year for you as you've moved into this role. Uh, any highlights, anything uh, that jump out from this past year? Sure, yeah. So this has been a lot of learning for me with this program. I've learned a lot. Uh, we've done some changes in the structure to make it more suitable for students who kind of streamline the courses a bit, give them more uh, focus on uh, coding and uh, uh, data analysis and data science and analytics and bring in uh, the focus into new developments like generative AI and uh, other new de- low-code environments and such. And uh, we've started this uh, immersion program in which uh, I'm going to go there uh, so next week to New York City with a group of uh, 20 students where we meet uh, different uh, companies uh, and really uh, through this experience understand how companies are using analytics. And uh, so that was a new thing we definitely uh, started this year and it's a highlight uh, of that. And another one that we uh, did this year was we started a peer uh, tutoring program uh, you know, our strength is that we bring students from different backgrounds, but that also means that some students are new to coding, 
and some students may be new to uh, you know communications and presentations and such so the peer uh, tutoring program is uh, volunteers from the current cohort who raise their hands to help uh, their peers maybe in coding maybe in presentation skills and so really helping each other out and uh, it, it's been wonderful to see that develop yeah, I appreciate your mentioning the, the technical piece, but also the communications piece. I think that's one of the things that we consistently hear from students and student panels, or just when you see them around the residency. It's not just R and Python and all these things. It's then you know, extracting insights from the data and socializing those insights and communicating them to different stakeholders. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I think, is a strength too, you know, because I feel like uh, I've always believed it. Um, and this is true from... Um, time immemorial. I give this example in my class on linear regression, which is a analytics tool. And it was started, uh, it was discovered in the 1800s. And that the, to predict the location of asteroids, nerding out a bit, but there is a, a story, <laughs> there's some point here around communication. So there is a, a debate around who invented it. Because there was somebody who did it in 1790 and another person who did it in 1800. And there was a question about who really invented it. But the one person who became popular and who got credited and who was actually effective in PM people uh, using it uh, uh, was the person who actually uh, wrote down a step-by-step -step method for uh, doing this uh, method. So even in the 1800s, uh, it was really important not just to find and do the analytics, but also communicate. So that's true even today. Well, let's talk about some of the initiatives you mentioned as you were talking about this past year. I want to start with the immersion trip uh, to New York City. Mm -hmm. So I think this was in response kind of popular demand. I think students were asking for this kind of trip. And so talk to us a little bit more, not just about the inspiration, but what you'll actually be doing during during the week, some of the companies you'll be visiting, for example. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So uh, this is another example of how responsive we are to the student input, right? Because the students started, there was no immersion program in this uh, before in the first five years, in the first four years, and because we did this in the fifth year. And uh, the students, you know, we do this in other programs. We do this in uh, executive MBA, uh, in the part-time, and in our residential, and in the Emerson Commerce. And so the students really, you know, asked us, why don't we do it? We, we, we thought, okay, we didn't have the space because it was a one-year program. That was primarily why. And then we say, okay, we went back and said, is there really space? And we found the space uh, next week, actually, where uh, we could do this because we find there's a lot of value from being in the ground to learn from practitioners on how the theory and the and the projects that we do in the class really gets translated into real world uh, experiences and also across the wide industries how this happens so the in terms of the companies we'll be visiting we're visiting a wide variety of industries banking luxury goods advertising uh, technology the sampling would be Bloomberg, American Express, uh, LVMH, an ad agency, uh, LinkedIn. Um, I, there's, those are some examples of companies we're visiting. I'm sure there are a few more that are uh, skipping my mind here. 
Yeah, that's great. And um, it's I know just from talking with executive MBA students, you know, when they go on a global residency or full-time students, when they go on a Darden Worldwide course, they have the opportunity really to immerse in the location. It's a real transformative experience, not just because of the companies you're visiting and what you're seeing um, and the people you're meeting, but also the shared like a spree de core that comes with having that experience with 20 other students. Yeah, absolutely. And the innovation for the upcoming year is that we will have a global residency option as well. So students can take the option of either going to somewhere in the world. I mean, the candidates could be Israel, Tel Aviv, or Sweden, or Ireland, uh, or Germany, uh, or Cambridge, because those are like hubs where we feel technology and analytics are growing outside of the US. Um, or you can go to New York or uh, San Francisco. In fact, the way we choose these is we gave the students an option of like a five cities. And basically based on their input, the majority, so it's a really co-created uh, process. I appreciate that. Well, let's talk about the uh, the peer tutoring program. As, as you mentioned, we have lots of students from lots of different academic backgrounds. Many of our students actually do not have prior exposure or prior experience with some of the tools or many of the tools they'll encounter in the program. Um, so how, how did the peer tutoring program come about and, and how have the students gotten involved with it? Yeah. So, uh, um, you know, the peer tutoring started because in the first module, when you're just starting, I call it like, you know, uh, if you come to this program, you'll be sick of me saying that is that it's like learning to swim, right? In module one, you're standing outside the pool looking at the instructor swimming and tipping your toes in the water and saying it's too cold I don't want to jump in the water right and that's kind of how you are when you're uh, in this program in the first module as you're seeing all these new concepts and oh my god I need to now learn Python and R and SPSS or all these things how am I going to do this and of course the faculty are available to you all the time if you have any questions but there is this gap, right? There is this distance. Somehow students feel that for every little doubt they have or question they have, they don't want to go bug the faculty. I understand that you can do that, but I understand that some students feel that hesitation. And also there is actually uh, a lot of academic research in education that shows that uh, people learn from each other more. And sometimes the peers are able to explain in a way that uh, they can, uh, you can understand better because you're speaking kind of your language. And that's why you use the case method. I, in fact, is because it's a way to get peers to discuss and collaborate and learn from each other. So the peer tutoring is uh, a version of that. And it has been great. I've, uh, students I've been talking to uh, about it have always said uh, they really uh, appreciate their peer tutors. And it's very informal. It's not like there's a certain time when you have to go approach them. It, it's these folks uh, have really um, given, like are really volunteered and like, you know, they believe in the program and are giving their time to their fellow peers. And uh, we appreciate uh, their contributions and uh, what they've done to make this uh, program a better place. And uh, it also creates a strong community uh, when you learn from each other, not just in the classroom, but outside as well. Yeah, I think that's one of the hallmarks of the MSBA program from its inception is this sense of community. I think sometimes when people look at 12 months, specialized masters. I think it's been much more transactional, uh, but this has been a program that's always had a strong sense of community. And that's also because we've, uh, 
maintain the in-person residencies out of uh, you know 10 residencies five, five modules and two residencies per module which is which is uh, really uh, critical for these networks and the building of the community not just i find uh, within a cohort but even across cohorts so we have a strong alumni network and honestly the new york program uh, we were able to put up because our alumni were like so happy to host us. And that's how we are able to do these is because you created this community. And if you're online only, it's great. It's a, a different platform of learning. If that works for you, that's great. But it really is challenging to form uh, cohorts uh, that are really, uh, you know, coming together uh, in a way that is, you know, there are interactions among students outside the class, you know, during the breaks, or like we have the Saturday and Sunday residencies, you know, sometimes people come on Friday, uh, before the Saturday residency, or like Saturday nights, you know, we have a happy hour or reception, or people go out for dinner, because they're all in there, uh, and the same hotel and the same uh, space. And so that really creates this connection that lasts a lifetime. Yeah, it's interesting. It's a program is a third in person, two thirds online. But to your point, there's consistent in person engagement mm -hmm. with the program, and also you see each other online for your live online classes a couple yeah. nights per week too. Um, so it, it, there's sort of layering uh, that happens here. Mm -hmm. So we're currently in the fifth and final module uh, of the program. It's an exciting time. Everything's been kind of building to this module, and um, students do capstone uh, projects in this in this. Uh, final module, the fifth fifth module. So, um, tell us a little bit about some of the capstone projects. I know there's there's quite a few, but um, any jump out uh, to you? The capstones are a wonderful experience. I mean, that's you know, that's uh, re I really like uh, working with students on projects. Before I talk about the mod five capstone, I want to emphasize that we have projects that are mini capstones uh, in each module. So this is the fifth project they're doing, and all five projects are real life projects, right? So you have like, uh, so there is a lot of application and that's what gives us the flexibility as well in terms of uh, being able to apply what you learn from the classes to a real problem and work as a team. So it brings in all of the communication, teamwork and application things. And you do this throughout the year. This is the fifth time they're doing. Uh, and the difference between this module capstone and the previous ones are, the previous ones, it's a single project that we design. We have collaborations with Hilton, with the University of Virginia, um, and uh, other uh, enterprises where we design a project that is based on something that the company is facing. And all the students, 12 to 13 teams, work on the same project. The capstone is a little different where you can explore different specialties beyond the ones that the school prescribes. So there is a project on predicting housing pricing, uh, predicting demand for a B2B chemicals company, um, uh, increasing the participation rates for a nonprofit uh, and developing the donor lifetime value. Uh, there's a project on... Uh, uh, running a big uh, product design study and pricing study for a new technology, uh, predicting fraud, uh, uh, understanding sentiments uh, based on user-generated 
selected content for a consumer brand. So you can see there's a wide variety of projects and people choose different projects based on their interests. And then they explore and we help them find companies or they find companies within their networks to really uh, the capstone in the fifth module is where uh, it's a three credit cross. So it's a lot, it's double the number of credits than the previous capstones. And um, it's a culmination of all their learnings uh, that they've had in this uh, MSBA. Yeah, I was going to ask how you felt like, of course, it is it's application based curriculum, there's projects at the conclusion of each uh, each of the modules, as mentioned. Uh, but how do you feel like the capstone really fits into the, the curriculum design? It's been a, it's been a piece of, of this uh, MSBA program from its inception. Yeah. So the cap, what we do with uh, the projects in each module is they are the final. There's no written final exam because, you know, in a master's professional degree program, it doesn't make sense to have uh, sit in a classroom and take an exam. Uh, there are projects and even the classwork is based on uh, homeworks and assignments. So it's a very application oriented. What we do in each module is there is one project and the grade in that project contributes towards partially to the grades in all the courses in that module. So the faculty are also coordinating. So it's a project that is designed by all courses in that module. So it's really an integration of the topics you're learning. So we're not saying you learn communications here, you learn coding here, and you learn marketing there. In real life, all three come together and we use the capstone as the way to make it all come together. So all faculty come together to design it together and your performance in that project affects your grades in all the classes. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about what's um, going on in the world and how that might be also shaping what you're doing in the program. Because one of the things that I had a conversation with Trey Maxim, and I know we've talked as well about program is constantly evolving, constantly being updated, but it feels like technology, particularly if you look at AI, generative AI, that's changing very quickly. I mean, three, four months ago, how many people were talking about chat GPT, GPT-3, 4, et cetera. Now it seems like we're all, all we talk about. So how can the program, how is the program staying current, keeping up, uh, evolving? Sure. Uh, so that's the beauty of this program is that it is for us, this is the program where we are trying to be as current as possible. So we bring in the big changes in terms of technology into the curriculum, first in the MSBA program. Right. And uh, we have uh, already talked about generative AI. We have classes on, uh, or actually faculty this year in module four, that was March or April, uh, use generative AI in his classes in terms of understanding how to use it and uh, how to query it and how to integrate it within your coding process. So the faculty have already started like uh, building it into the curriculum. We don't call like one course coding with generative AI because the, for us, the course is something that uh, withstands uh, the test of time. It's something that is, uh, you know, very fundamental. But the way we approach the course changes. So if you're looking at data science, yes, there is a, a starter code that we give in Python, but you can have chat GPT update that code for a new uh, assignment or a new project, right? So our faculty really embrace it to, uh, you know, make their classes better and also help uh, 
students learn it. And don't forget their projects, because the projects is what gives us flexibility, is where we will start bringing it in ASAP. It's very easy to bring them in, learn from it, and then use that learnings to update our courses. One of the things I'm really interested in um, here as I've listened to you talk is what generative AI means for some of the hard coding um, skills. And it feels like, I mean, one of the conversation threads that's out there is that eventually it's the robots are going to take over the coding. And so, so, so what uh, for people, what's left after that? And so yeah. what's your reaction to that? Okay. Yes. I mean, it is great. It's a great technology. Don't get me wrong. When I, when this came out, in the marketing area, as you can see, the marketing field is also freaking out because this can write ad copies now. So I ha I got a lot of calls from the marketing uh, media saying, "What is going to happen? How's the world going to change?" And I explored it a bit. I explored it and I came to the conclusion, which was similar to other experts, basically saying that it can write a B paper. Right? It can get you eighty percent of the way. Which is great because now the rest 20% last mile is what matters and what really differentiates people. Right? So if you're high quality, ChatGPT is going to make you even better. And it's going to make you do your work better. The same with programming. Uh, I've tried some coding with ChatGPT. It can get me 80% of the way. I've talked to other software development professionals who say the same thing. It gets a 70, 80% of the way. Okay. And then the uniqueness and the innovation that we bring in is still valuable. So the key is to treat it as a fancy calculator. Okay. And try to, I mean, nobody said, oh, the calculator is going to stop the accountants now, right? No. I mean, the accountants are still there. They've evolved and they've changed. The same way, we are going to be a more productive race. I would take it in a more positive way that this is a technology that's going to make us better. Of course, there are uh, dangers uh, that are genuine around this in terms of how we use it and what we use it for. And those are some ethical and regulatory concerns that as a society, this is, yes, we need to uh, really pay attention to. But in strictly speaking, in terms of analytics for good, it is a good thing. Right, we can use it to, for bad things, and that is something which is also a discussion we encourage in the core curriculum. But that's um, it's, it's like two sides of the same coin. And as a society, we need to figure out where we fall under and take the good and try to restrict the bad. So it's, it's interesting to to hear some of the sort of last mile get you eighty percent of the way there. Um, what do you think all this means for the analytics professionals of, of the future as you look, yeah. look forward for MSBA graduates? Yeah. So in one word, I'd say, uh, well, two words. I'll say judgment matters. What do I mean by that? So the prediction and the uh, analytics are quickly becoming like run-of-the-mill predictions and analytics are becoming commodities. And you can still, uh, you know, add that extra 20% and get there in terms of making your predictions and your machine learning models. Many people can use GPT to get there. Now, what really matters is how you use those predictions to make decisions in your company. 
So really, when we began, we talked about how coding and communication and leadership and uh, the soft skills matter as well. So it's really the per people who can connect these left and right brain is what are going to be the most uh, valuable resources in the workforce uh, going forward. And it really speaks to also our strengths in the our program is because uh, from its conception, we have always been about the T, which is breadth and depth, right? Depth within analytics and breadth in terms of uh, leadership and uh, more liberalized judgment focus. So I think that combination is going to be very key. And all these new developments actually make our program more relevant than it was before. One of the things that I think has also been a hallmark of this program is, is very broad exposure to lots of different tools and, and techniques uh, rather than just going deep in a few of them. You get exposed to a lot of things. And at least my understanding is that's kind of a, the inspiration for that is, well, these tools and techniques are constantly evolving. New things yeah. are always being introduced. Yes, absolutely. And that's why our courses are more uh, fundamental concepts like data science. Uh, managing digital disruption, or uh, marketing analytics, enterprise analytics, uh, software development. So it's not based on, okay, learn Python, because then tomorrow you have Altrix, which is a low-code environment, or you might have ChatGPT come up with. But the base fundamentals of data science still withstand the test of time, and that's what we focus on. And we use uh, the coding and the technology as a means to the end. And one of the things that was interesting to me as you were talking about sort of the analytics professional of the future is something that I've been really intrigued about as we've talked about GPT, chat GPT and generative AIs. There's a choice here, or maybe some, some thought is worth uh, uh, engaging in around what a human's add and what can robots, the computers really, really do well and sort of what makes us uniquely human and in, in that conversation? I think what makes us uniquely human, at least now, is that it is our decision on what the robot does, or at least the objective function that we define for the machines is still with the humans. We've still not reached a place where like in Terminator, where the robot actually can also create its own objective function. Right. So I think that's where uh, with robots, I feel like uh, it's gotten better than before. Of course, it's a great technology, but where humans come in, that's why I said judgment matters. It is about the questions. It is about the application. It's about the strategy on what needs to be answered or optimized. Right. So the, I, I'll share one example. There's this example about where they talk about the problem with machines is that, you know, there's this paperclip problem. This is a philosophy professor who came up with this uh, example, like a hypothetical example. Let's say you have a machine that is really good at doing whatever you set it to do. So you set the objective function as make paperclips. So it's going to optimize making paper clips. It might destroy the whole world, use the whole world's resources and fill it with paper clips. According to the machine, it has done its job. But we know as humans that, okay, we are not going to destroy all the trees and uh, resources in the planet to make more paper clips more efficiently. 
there's a trade-off and those are the trade-offs where humans come in which at least till now machines are not able to make that trade-off I want to talk a little bit about your research interests as well as something that you mentioned at the outset. And uh, when we were doing our prep call uh, for this conversation, you mentioned you really have kind of uh, three key uh, research mm -hmm. projects going on right now around ES and G, uh, yeah. environmental, social, and governance. So uh, let's yeah. talk with your environmental. Let's talk about your environmental project uh, first. Okay. So um, yeah. you're working on a project that looks out at how uh, how abnormal uh, weather patterns affect. Uh, group of people's propensity uh, for climate-related projects. Yeah. It feels very topical, by the way. Right now, everything going on here on the East Coast of the United States. So um, oh. what was the inspiration for this project? So the inspiration was really when, uh, if I have to go to my research uh, philosophy, what I started off was, I mean, I was a quant person. I was a data junkie. I have, like I said, I went, I did computer engineering. I was a coder. Right. And I started doing really heavy duty quant models using genetic algorithms, Bayesian, um, Markov chain, Monte Carlo methods on predicting customer lifetime value, optimizing lifetime value, Salesforce analytics models, promotion analytics, uh, media attribution models. That was the world I was in. Over time, I had slowly, you know, maybe it's the case method and teaching uh, MBA students for so long made me uh, uh, question, okay, maybe I should do more pro projects that I find meaningful. Not that these projects are not meaningful. Many companies have done very well with using some of these models. But I wanted to get into topics that I felt were beyond just the firms, where there was an intersection between the firm and the society. That's why I landed on this thing I call it the ESNG. It's not ESG, which is like the common term we use. And uh, but it is. I decided I'm not going to you go down oh ESG investing as a topic, but I'm going to tackle each pillar E. S and G. So in the E part, what I uh, started thinking was, you know, there is uh, whenever there is this, like now we are having this uh, smoke uh, issue and air quality issue. And then there was the uh, come fall, you'll have a few hurricanes come. I wish we don't have, but you and I know, <laughs> and people on the call know if you're on the East Coast, on the Atlantic Coast, hurricanes are going to happen. Right? And some of these hurricanes, and they get larger. And last year, it was one of those examples where the hurricane just stood there on like, you know, what was it, Tampa, right? Or no, it was Naples. It just stood there. It just is not moving. And so it's not really powerful, but it doesn't move fast. So it dumps a lot of rain. And that is really a function of climate change. And when those things happen is when we start talking about climate change. Right? Or when there is like a heavy, uh, like California is like uh, cold and there's snow and there is rain and that's a, a climate event. So these extreme weather events are going to be more common and those extreme weather events is what makes us really think about uh, climate change. So I wanted to see whether this translates into people's adoption. I'm a marketing professor after all. I want to look at whether people buy green products when these weather events happen. And along this weather event pattern, there was another uh, thing around climate change is that there is a split in the world between people who think climate change is man-made and those who think climate change is not man-made. So uh, what we did was we combined those and saw do people shift to green products 
when they see uh, climate uh, like cold or heat wave, abnormal cold or heat wave in their uh, community, and which communities are reacting more. It turns out, yes, people uh, react to these weather events if it happens in their community, not if it happens in someone else's. So if it happens to you, then you feel like, okay, there is some uh, reaction. Fine, that's good. But what was really interesting for us was also that this reaction comes from communities where they don't believe climate change is man-made. So it actually is these climate events are um, the way in which you actually it convinces people who may not be yet convinced that uh, there are human uh, effects in climate change to actually uh, start adopting uh, green products in that uh, climate change. So then we are doing some more analysis to see, okay, how can brands, you know, uh, leverage this? And this is where you see it's like both society can gain from us actually adopting it. And also brands can gain from, you know, positioning themselves correctly uh, when these uh, climate events happen. So it's still a work in progress, but uh, I've been really excited to see some of these results and uh, look forward to publishing them. All right, and I'm going to go, I guess, to uh, the social uh, focus project next. Uh, so, uh, looking at interventions um, yeah. that make minority and women entrepreneurs mm -hmm. successful in marketplaces like Amazon, Etsy, uh, yeah. what have you learned through this work? So, this is a really a new project at this point. So, we are just starting to work on it. But the main idea is we are working with the big uh, platform in India. And they have uh, one of their uh, benefits of the online platform has been allowing um, small businesses in like rural communities, uh, providing them a market for the whole of the country. And uh, so that has been a really great uh, economic development opportunity for uh, very rural small businesses in India. Uh, but one of the things we, uh, the company wanted to see was how they can bring in more artisans and women entrepreneurs to come on board to be able to do this. So they've given some programs like free shipping for the first few months or free, uh, no commissions for their products for the first few months. The challenge they face is some of these artisan products are still uh, really expensive. And it's because they're handmade but the demand is then low so we are trying to see how we can match the uh, you know the quality of the product but also uh, make it fit with the preferences of the consumers on the platform so in a way you're doing so good for the community by helping them uh, lift them up by providing them more opportunities but at the same time uh, also helping uh, the platform and uh, other consumers get better products. How did you? How do you get interested in that a project like that, where you're looking at a platform in India? That, that how, does this? Does somebody call you? Do you just learn about this platform and say, "Hey, this might be an interesting research yeah. project"? So that's a. Uh, it's a. Uh, it's a. Uh, so that's one of the things which is valuable of uh, being a faculty at uh, UVA and at Darden is it is a community with a lot of alums. And I have been, like I said, I was focused on E, S, and G. 
I have a project in the G part with governance and privacy. So I was looking at like uh, social uh, uh, projects as well. But at the same time, we one of our alumni uh, knows the board of this platform, has helped them in uh, in his consultancy with them. And these folks wanted to collaborate with academic institutions and put me, because uh, in one of those immersion programs we talked about, I'd uh, become good friends with this alumni. And when this platform was looking for academic collaborations, he played matchmaker and asked us to talk. So we are actually developing five different case studies with this platform. And one of our uh, econ colleagues uh, and our marketing colleagues, they I'm working with them on this project and they were looking at social issues as well. So in one of our lunches, I said, yeah, they were talking about what they were doing in their research. And I was like, huh, there is an opportunity here. So I played matchmaker next. And so that's kind of how it, that's the value of community that you don't get when you're online. It's like this kind of relationships and connections. And that's kind of how, how research happens, how innovation happens, is people from different walks of life coming together and real innovation happens at that intersection. Yeah, I'm always just curious uh, about how these how these things happen. And I want to take a little bit of time also to talk about your G, a related product, the project, project. Yeah, <laughs> governance uh, related <laughs> things. Yeah, that's so that's right. a fun one. That's one is uh, more closer, uh, far along. So what we, um, so I wrote this book on AI and marketing and called the AI Marketing Canvas and talked to a lot of CMOs and uh, chief data officers in the process. And one of the things that uh, came out was uh, building of AI capabilities. And, um, you know, um, they will either buy technology, uh, new companies, they buy small startups and bring the technology in or they build it in-house. And that was something we elaborated a lot in my book. And But companies are really focused on building AI capability. And at the same time, in one, uh, again, it comes back to immersions. And that's why I feel like how valuable these are. We've always had like... Uh, uh, in these tech immersions, uh, lawyers come and talk to us about privacy because this was a big uh, topic. And we learned, and through that, I learned a lot about GDPR, which is the European Privacy Regulation, and CCPA, which is California's Privacy Regulation. In fact, Virginia launched a privacy regulation a year back as well. And so my mind started working and thinking, okay, what if you put those two together, right? So if uh, AI uses a lot of customer data, and it needs customer data to be accurate. But all of the companies that uh, tech companies, many tech companies I talked to and Main Street companies I talked to were worried about these privacy regulations because it was going to increase their cost and actually uh, make compliance very expensive and also make their models less accurate. So they were really concerned about these regulations hurting their ability to grow and uh, they said provide value for their uh, consumers. So what we decided to do was look at, okay, let's see if this is even true. So we looked at public databases on uh, 
uh, acquisitions of uh, technology by publicly traded companies as a database that tells about acquisitions and what the price of the acquisitions was. And then we scrape the web to find out a description of the acquisitions. Companies always put a press release when they do an acquisition. So we scrape the web to see what are the objective of the acquisition. So what we really find in uh, very uh, uh, straightforward way is that, okay, yes, GDPR did reduce the valuation of AI technology companies and it increased the risk, stock market risk for companies acquiring technology companies. So it did have an overall like problem in terms of performance for these companies. But the silver lining, which is where as a marketer made me feel really good, was if that AI technology is customer-centric, that is, it is focused on delivering customers' value, then the deal valuations went up and the risk in the stock reduced after privacy regulations. So really what privacy regulations are helping uh, direct firms deliver more value with AI rather than do other things with AI. So it's actually directing firms in a way that is improving customer welfare. All right, well, Raj, as if like you don't have enough going on already uh, with the MSBA program and these research projects, you're also involved in planning an AI, generative AI conference yes. uh, at Darden in December. I know it's early. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about the yes. early plans for this conference? Absolutely, love to. So it all comes together, Brett. It's all in AI, it's all in the same world. That's the value of this is to, you need to have synergy in what you do. Right, we are business analytics is also uh, relevant to AI. Research is also an AI, and the conference too. So the conference, the idea is that we have all these research projects. I am doing this privacy project, but we have uh, other faculty who are doing uh, projects on machine, human machine interface. Uh, uh, faculty who are doing work on the future of the workplace and also uh, how the future uh, the society and labor force will evolve with the uh, AI. So we want to definitely highlight our faculty, but the main idea is that we've started an AI initiative within the school. And the idea is that with generative AI and with a lot of these large AI models that are out there, the big question moving forward is how we are going to use them for improving society and not getting, uh, you know, uh, destroyed by it. And the White House has started a White House uh, panel on uh, AI regulation and AI ethics. Europe is going to pass a law very soon on AI regulation. And um, we thought this really is important for us and really the future is going to be about bringing together multiple stakeholders the technology folks the digital strategy folks the regulators and philosophers and uh, citizens to come together and what we want to do is to create a platform and a conversation for all of this to happen to be part of this uh, movement towards understanding how we are going to harness all this technology for good. And our location is a really important part of that, right? We have our DC campus, we are in the thick of all of these conversations and our community extends into all of these. 
and we are about stakeholders and how bringing together different parties uh, to have a more balanced conversation for a more balanced outlook on society. So this really is consistent with Garden and UVA's mission. It is consistent with where we are in our location and our connections and where we are strong at. And so we wanted to be the convener of important conversations around the future of generative AI and AI in general and society. So that's this is the first conference. We're planning to do more things uh, in the future, but um, I'm really excited because you're getting a lot of uh, interest across schools. We are working with the data science school, McIntyre, Darden all coming together and bringing in people from like business, society, and uh, uh, you know, uh, regulators to come together. And we feel like we are really good when we can bring people together to you know harness all their minds to focus on a single topic to come up with a viewpoint on what we need to do next. Well, excellent. All right. So let's talk about a few last questions. Um, and I see we've got a question here about, you know, preparing for the program. But before we get to that question, I want to ask it just in your opinion, you've touched on a lot of things today. Uh, what makes the UVA MSBA program distinctive uh, in your in your in your mind? I would say, you know, community. Uh, it's the balance of left and right brain. And it is the ability to ask the right questions and connect better as a business analyst with different parts of the uh, business. So it's, uh, it builds you up to be a leader in the data science field. And for folks who may be coming into the program or thinking about applying to start the program uh, in August or maybe in a subsequent year, any prep advice, anything that you would recommend for them? I know, as mentioned, many of our students don't have background in some of the yeah. things that they're going to see in the program. Absolutely. So we have a few resources that we have collated where we can definitely share on like coding basics or, you know, math basics, data science basics that will allow you to brush up. Uh, I think it's good for everyone. If you are already in this, you know, it may have been a bit rusty, refresh your minds on this if you're new to it you know uh, be brave get into it and uh, i would say spend the time yes uh, we're happy to recommend uh, these uh, resources that we have collated uh, some internal to darden some external that uh, people have found that really useful uh, to review them before uh, starting the program all right, let's see. We've got another question about can you do a Darden MBA and the MSBA as a dual degree? Uh, fortunately, the answer is no, but we have had some people come from uh, an MBA program at Darden into the MSBA program afterwards. Yes. So you complete the two degrees and essentially, well, depends on which program, but maybe three years, uh, which is pretty, yeah. pretty awesome. Yeah, I think that's about, uh, yes. And I think if you did the MSBA, definitely when you apply to the MBA program, we will know you. We, and that really helps in terms of, you know, presenting yourself to the admissions folks uh, for the residential MBA or the exec MBA. And definitely it has happened the other way around too. Yeah. 
Yeah, people sometimes ask us, how is it similar? How is it different than an MBA? And one of the things I always share is that, you know, for example, the most recent class, I think it was 15, 58, 59 students in the current cohort, I think nine of them had an MBA already. So yeah. they're, they're complementary, yeah. um, yeah. but they are they are not duplicative. Yeah. So I think it's the in the T, the place where you go in depth in analytics is what would be distinctive in the MSBA from the MBA. And I see we've gotten some questions, sort of a riff on this technical, how much did, if you don't have coding experience, can you apply for this program? Raj, I, I answered this question, but I, I want to, I want to hear your answer to this. I could have seen students with no technical experience come into this program. And by the time they're graduating, they're like coding in their left hand with Python. Okay. So it will happen. It is the projects. It is the class assignments. It is the peer tutors. So there is a process that we have over time within over a year, you will add layer on the coding skills. So we're not going to ask you to code in Python on day one. It's not going to happen. One of the things I also think is interesting is that you're rarely starting from scratch. And I think you mentioned this, but I want to come back to this. Like when, when you're working with a coding project, you're off on a running start, so to speak. You yes. get some code to, to build yes. on. Yes, absolutely. The faculty give some starter code and they walk you through that code to help you understand what each part is. And you take that and make some modifications. That's kind of how you get started. And then you slowly start to build your own different parts of the program. And by the last module, you're running all of it yourself, but you have this, all that code, starter code already lying with you that you can use. And of course, I, as I tell my MSBA students even now, use ChatGPT. You need to know what to ask it and to see whether it works. And those are the skills you will gain by then. And ask it to code. There's nothing yeah, wrong with it. It's a fancy calculator. One of the things that sometimes hear from students, you know, maybe who did like a Python boot camp mm -hmm. and then they come to the program and they're looking at the program is that the program makes it a lot easier to learn some of these schools, these these tools and techniques because you're learning in application to actually yes. solve business problems. Yes. You're doing it in a collaborative way yes. rather than just pure coding. It's yes. in furtherance of a, of a business problem and solution. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes it really relevant and it is important to learn it in context. That's a good point, Brett. Well, Raj, we covered a lot of ground here. You mentioned your own book, but I wonder also three books for people um, who yeah. are in this on this conversation, just want to learn more about these topics, maybe yeah. curious about AI, what, whatever you might recommend here. Um, yeah, can I pitch my book again? AI Marketing? Yeah, you can, definitely. <laughs> this is like, like outside of my book. Hey, gotta be shameless. I'm a marketer. <laughs> outside of my book, I would say Prediction Machines is a good book. Uh, this is about evolution of markets when there is wide availability of machine learning and AI. Uh, another book I would say is The Ethical Algorithm. This is about, there is privacy regulations, but there is also about how do you develop algorithms that are uh, without bias, that are fair and ethical. Um, and it goes into, it's not just about the math, it's a lot about uh, the different uh, philosophical decisions you need to make when you build an algorithm that is ethical. Uh, the final, I would not recommend a book uh, being a, a technology-focused program. I would uh, recommend a YouTube series 
called Making Friends with Machine Learning. The person is, uh, she's part of Google. It's called, uh, she's called, uh, named Casey Kasirgao. And uh, the title is Making Friends with Machine Learning. It's a YouTube series. It's one of the best I have seen in actually explaining it in a very uh, nice way for uh, people to get started. I have one last question as we wrap up here. It's a little bit inspired by the question that we have here in the Q&A about getting exposure to lots of different tools, right? R, SQL, talked about Python, Tableau, et cetera. The list, the list goes on. When you look forward for graduates, you know, people graduate from this program, what do you think that they're prepared to do? And you go to a job and take on a new role. What, what do you, how would you describe that to someone? So the person who I think we graduate, an ideal graduate is somebody, um, again, I go back to the T. They are able to collaborate. See, the data science process is not just about the coding. It is one aspect of the data science process. It starts with the definition of the problem. It starts with understanding what data is needed and data engineering and then coding and machine learning and then making inferences and then uh, recommending plan of action and iterating on this process. For us, the ideal graduate is the one who can work with the business partners to define the problem better, to work with the data science folks and the technology folks to do be part of the data engineering, to be a really good coder who can create these machine learning, awesome machine learning and AI tools, and also know what, because they were part of the problem definition, also know whether we are actually solving the problem that we set out to do and making recommendations for businesses that are more relevant and make sense. So our ideal graduate is the one who can complete the data science process and is capable of being part of all aspects of that. All right, I think that's a perfect place to end. So thank you so much, Raj, for being here. I really enjoyed this conversation. I always learned something new. And for our attendees today, just so you know, uh, we have recorded this conversation. We're going to share it in a couple of places. Uh, it's going to be up on the MSBA blog. Hopefully, you've had a chance to check out uh, that blog. If that's news to you that we have a blog, make sure you take a look at it. We've got lots of great current student Q&As. We've got a couple of Q&As with our new staff members, Marcy and Pamela. And we'll be adding new stories all about the MSBA program and may, maybe even a story uh, about the New York City immersion that, that's coming up. So, so stay tuned. Um, and as I mentioned at the at the outset, there are still opportunities to apply uh, for this program. If you've looked at the website, you know that our last formal deadline uh, was June 5th, uh, but we will continue to accept applications on a rolling basis until the class fills. And, and if you're wondering, is it too late? It is definitely not too late. We have many current MSBA students who applied in June and July. So reach out, let us know how we can help. I can schedule a one-on-one -on -one conversation with, with our team, but we so appreciate uh, you're taking some time out of your Friday afternoon. Raj, thank you again. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Brett. It's always a pleasure. And uh, it was great to meet everyone, albeit virtually. And I look forward to meeting you in person. And that was my interview with Raj Vinkatesi, a member of the marketing faculty here at the Jordan School of Business and one of the co-academic leaders for the MS in Business Analytics program here at the University of Virginia. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.